conclude a mini-series this morning from the chapter Luke 15, which has three classic parables. One, the last one, is the most infamous parable, not only in Luke 15, but one of the most well-known stories in the entire New Testament. It is that for a number of different reasons. In many ways, it is a classic and amazing and beautiful display of the core truth of the gospel uh, of Christianity before us this morning as we look at this parable of the lost sons. And we've taken uh, three different weeks. The first week we looked at God the Father. Uh, Last week we looked at the younger son or the younger brother in the parable. And today we're going to hone in and focus on the often neglected elder brother in the parable. We'll talk more about that in a minute. If you will, stand for the reading of God's Word. We've condensed the reading this morning from the weeks past so we can focus more clearly on the elder brother this morning. So Luke 15, we'll hear verses 1 and 2 to contextualize this story, and then we'll pick up in verse 25. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look! These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you, gave, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. One of the things I miss about having younger children is reading books to them. I loved many of the books that we read to our children When they were younger, one of my favorites and one that was in the regular rotation when they were younger was the classic by P.D. Eastman that I assume many of you know, Are You My Mother? Are You My Mother is the story and the journey of a little bird who is separated from his mother, falls out of the nest, and then goes on this journey, lost and alienated, seeking to find his mother. And so he, uh, the bird goes and asks all these different animals and even different objects if they or his mother, and then of course, thankfully, the story ends, like it should, with this child, this baby bird, being reunited with its mother. That story is us in life. Every one of us was born, and even to this day, struggles with being lost and alienated, and we are seeking to find who we are. We are seeking to find 
our identity. We are seeking to find our way in the world to move out of our lostness, out of our alienation, into connection. And this parable displays two primary ways that essentially all people either choose one or the other or many, a combination of both. There's two primary ways we can be lost and alienated, according to Tim Keller, Edmund Clowney, and a guy named Ed Bailey. Uh, These are three men that I've relied heavily upon, their scholarship in studying and looking at this parable. Some of you would be familiar with Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, wrote a book called The Prodigal God. I would highly commend that to you. A lot of Keller's insight comes from a mentor and professor of his named Ed Clowney, and then there's a Middle Eastern scholar who is an evangelical Christian named Kenneth Bailey, who is fantastic in this. But Keller breaks down the two areas of lostness and alienation in Luke 15 to these two things. People are either lost in self-discovery or people are lost in moral conformity. People are either alienated primarily through self-discovery, what our culture would call self-actualization. This would be the progressive idea. This would be kind of the bohemian liberal way to pursue autonomous life and happiness. It would be the way of self-discovery, and you can be lost in self-discovery. You can be alienated through self-actualization. But you can also be lost in moral conformity. And this would be more character. While the former would be more characteristic of the younger son, the latter would be more characteristic of the older son, the elder brother. He was lost in moral conformity. He was lost with this fastidious desire to be right by doing right. And he was lost. And he was alienated. It's very interesting, as I referred to earlier, that this parable has even been referred throughout history as the parable of the prodigal son. Singular. It's as if we, for years, never read verses 1 and 2 that actually provoked the whole impetus for this parable. The text tells us, that sinners and tax collectors drew near to Jesus. And as a result of sinners and tax collectors drawing near to Jesus, the religious people were angry and they mumbled and they grumbled and complained self-righteously under their breath and maybe beyond that. And therefore, Jesus told this parable primarily to them. It's almost the case in point that we tend to focus so heavily upon the sins of unrighteousness and lack of moral conformity, the sins of being lost and alienated through self-discovery and self-actualization, that even as we look at this story in the parable, we completely ignore historically the lostness in the alienation of moral conformity, so much so we call it the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal actually simply means extravagant and spendthrift. Therefore, Keller's book is actually entitled The Prodigal God because God himself as a father in this story is extravagant 
in his generosity. He's extravagant in his embrace and in his welcome. He is extravagant in his celebration. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. The younger son is prodigal as well because he is extravagant and spendthrift with regard to his lostness and self-discovery. But then today, for our purposes, we're going to hone in more on the elder brother who too is prodigal. He is extravagant and he is spendthrift when it comes to his self-righteousness and when it comes to his desire for moral conformity. The big idea of what I want us to see from Luke 15 this morning as we focus on the elder brother is simply this. God's favor is unmerited. God's favor is unmerited. God freely offers His grace, His favor in Christ apart from our merit or lack thereof. God's favor to us, and this is good news, by the way. This is not good advice, the way in which many evangelical Christians sell the gospel. The good news is that God's favor is unmerited. And here's the truth. We don't like things to be unmerited. It's an odd confession to begin with, but it would be apt for us to just conclude this morning that we hate grace. We really do. We even don't like it in our own lives, and we abhor it in other people's lives. We live in what the columnist David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times and the Atlantic and others, and he's not the only one that talks about this, but he often refers to our culture as a meritocracy. And we were born into a meritocracy. Our families are meritocracies, both the ones we grew up in and, whether we like it or not, our current families most likely are meritocracies. School is a meritocracy. Activities outside of school we participate in are meritocracies where we literally and figuratively are seeking to earn merit badges, right? Work of all things is a meritocracy. You eat what you kill. You earn what you get. You reap what you sow. And that's our culture. And so why would we not, especially as Western enlightened people in our advancement, not think about Christianity and the gospel in the same way? And when we do that, what we've got to understand is we actually are not conceptualizing Christianity or the gospel. We're conceptualizing and formulating something that, we could, just be, that could be referred to as religion. And what we need to know is that the gospel is not religion. The gospel is something different than religion. In the first century, Christianity was known as the irreligion. Romans called Christians atheist because they were distinctly not religious. And here we have this story and we hear this truth that God's favor is unmerited and we resist it. Because we want, or so we think, things to be merited. This is a very good example in this room of people that have excelled in a meritocracy, culturally speaking. Therefore, this is a group and a room of people, because we have excelled culturally in a meritocracy, 
This is a group of people, myself leading the way, who have really missed the gospel and who have missed the core of what Christianity was about. It's as if we don't read the gospels themselves, you know, the four biographical accounts of Jesus. And it's as if we don't see Jesus' regular interactions with people of resistance. Who does Jesus have the most resistance with in the Gospels repetitively? Like it's not even close. What gets Jesus going in the realm of righteous anger or contention more than anything else? Religious people. Time and time and time again. It's as if Jesus, almost, you could make a case, is only, at least according to the Gospels, the account that we have, only concerned with the elder brothers of the world. That's who he he is at odds with repetitively. We see this manifest in a thousand different ways. I'll give you one reference before we start to dive in more detail into this text. Some of you would be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It's, chapter, it's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It was kind of Jesus's public coming out party with regard to content, preaching, and speaking, and he did these things repetitively. That is, he did this one sermon repetitively. And so that which he says in that sermon, we might want to take note of, and we could probably study it together uh, communally sometime. But when you get towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about this idea of a wide and a narrow road, right? And interestingly enough, that passage has historically been interpreted that we are to be on the narrow road and we are to avoid the wide road, which leads to destruction, which is completely true. But what is completely erroneous is what we think entails the wide road, When we read the Sermon on the Mount, when we do better scholarship, when we read the context, it's absolutely clear that Jesus' reference to the wide road in Matthew 7 is the wide road of self-righteousness. Because the whole Sermon on the Mount becomes this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus trying to make this point. It's not about doing, it's about being. It's not about rule righteousness, it's about heart righteousness. So be cautious not to get on the wide road of rule righteousness that leads to destruction. And so what we're doing this morning, as we look at Luke 15 and we look at the elder brother, we are trying to take heed and not move any further down the wide road that leads to destruction, which is the road of trusting in our own righteousness, being self-sufficient, fixating on rules, not worrying about relationship, giving so much attention and energy to external appearances. Meanwhile, our hearts waste away. That's a road to destruction. And Luke 15 is a calling sign to us this morning to say, stop. Let's look in more detail what it looks like to have an elder brother spirit. I actually want to approach the elder brother this morning uh, as seeing him uh, as one who has three problems. But it's not just him that has these three problems. I have these three problems, and you too, most of you, if not all of you, 
have these three problems as well, these three problems that would lead to the road of destruction, these three problems that would be characteristic of an elder brother spirit. What are the three problems? He has a problem with anger. He has a problem with accountability. And he has a problem, or I'm sorry, not accountability, with accounting. And then he has a problem also with acceptance. So we're going to look at the problem he has with anger, the problem that he has with accounting, and the problem that he has with acceptance. Let's look here in the beginning on this issue and this problem that he has with anger. In verse 28, once we see the younger brother has come home and the father starts to throw this raging party, we've already referred to that at a couple different times, but it just needs to be said again. Um, We as Christians modern day are missing something when it comes to the idea of celebration, joy, and literally how to throw a party. And so we could be instructed in proper hospitality from Luke 15, because here the father is throwing this unbelievable bash where he has great food, great drink, partying, singing, dancing. And here we find the elder brother in the field looking in, and what does he think? Verse 28 simply tells us, but he was angry and refused to go in. As I've surveyed the Gospels, this idea of anger, contempt, and bitterness might be the most crowning characteristic of a Pharisee. There's a lot of things that make up Pharisees and self-righteousness, but I almost wonder if anger, contempt, and bitterness is the primary crowning characteristic of what it means to be a rule-based, self-righteous Pharisee. Therefore, this could be a quick point to make early application. If we find ourselves in a disposition of anger, bitterness, and contempt, more often than not, chances are we traverse down the wide road which leads to destruction of self-righteousness regularly. But here we see this elder brother was angry. He was angry with God, that is, the father, analogously in this story, and then he could be angry with himself. Here's what happens with self-righteousness and anger. When we do right and things go wrong, we get angry. Because essentially what we've decided at that point is God didn't hold up his end of the bargain. He changed the rules in the middle of the game. He didn't follow through. I mean, I'm doing right. Why is everything in my life not perfect? And we get mad at God. And so we hate thee. But then there's this other sense We know we don't always actually do right. Sometimes we do wrong. And then, of course, things go wrong. And at that point, our anger and contempt turns inward, and we hate me. So self-righteous Pharisees hate thee, because God doesn't do everything that we want Him to do. And self-righteous Pharisees have anger, because we also hate me. And this is where N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar's quote at the front of your bulletin, is apropos. Because guess what? Angry people aren't enjoyable to be around. N.T. Wright, in uh, somewhat of a British wit, uh, 
states, someone who is determinedly trying to show God how good he is, is likely to become an insufferable prig. This is us. We're just angry. We're angry at God and we're angry at ourselves. We lack joy. And among other things, this is a really, really poor testimony to the good news of the gospel. And bottom line is, it's just a poor way to live. None of us would choose to sign up to be angry, bitter, and contemptuous. Not to mention all the physical, biological things that follow being angry, bitter, and contemptuous. So he's got a problem with anger, but he also has a problem with accounting. It's very interesting how the story unfolds. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. I'll talk about that at the end. But he answered his father, look. And so his anger at this point starts to spew. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Never. You understand you're not supposed to, you're never supposed to use the word never, right? Definitely not in marriage. I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Okay, where's the accounting problem? I'll just confess at this point. Um, Actually, financially, with regard to literal accounting, I'm decent. Was a business major, kind of can do numbers. With regard to like accounting in life, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible accountant of time. I can be a terrible accountant of simplicity or money. I can be a bad accountant with regard to like how much I can put on my plate. Self-righteous Pharisees are poor accountants. Where do we see poor accounting from the elder brother here? Well, already insinuated by drawing attention to the word never, but surely he's doing some poor accounting when he thinks about his own life, when he says, I never disobeyed you. Look, I never disobeyed you. Which of course is not true, but even if it were true, at this moment, he's breaking that statement. He's disobeying his father as he proclaims that he's never disobeyed him. And then self-righteous Pharisees, those of us who have an elder brother type spirit, oftentimes move quickly into one-upmanship, right? Don't you love when people seek to one-up you with a story or with a house or with a bank account or with success or with their children, right? Everybody likes to be one-upped by someone who has a superiority complex, who just reeks with entitlement. This is us. This is him. We have an elder brother spirit. We have a problem with accounting because we think it's our duty to espouse all the great things about us, to inflate them, pridefully, out of a superiority complex. You know why? Because we're insecure. 
And so we see it as our job to highlight our strengths, to embellish our strengths out of pride and superiority and entitlement and insecurity and put other people down. I was, had a, uh, just a brief interaction with um, a well-known pastor in this city that many of you would know. Uh, this past week, uh, we had an off-site kind of staff day, me and Lizzie and Jordan, and we were kind of, you know, solving the problems of the world as it relates to Resurrection Presbyterian all day this past Tuesday. And I happened to run into this guy who I know in the hallway of where we are meeting. And I said, you know, and, and we had already interacted a couple of times throughout the day. I said, you know, if you get the urge or feeling to stick your head in the conference room there, come in and set us straight and tell us how to do things. And he just simply said, I don't get that feeling very often. And I thought, it's because you're mature. That's why. And of course, it was a side joking comment to me, and his comment back to me was not meant to be anything particularly profound, but I took it as profound. Because you see, self-righteous people are always trying to tell other people how good they are and how other people's lives could be better like theirs. If that's true of you, that's a strong elder brother, brother spirit that has you and me on the road of destruction. But not only are self-righteous elder brothers poor accountants of themselves, they're also poor accountants of other people. Did you catch this in the story where the elder brother starts to once again embellish what his younger brother did? I mean, like, how does he know this? Did he like send him with like a nest camera, you know, in first century like Jerusalem uh, to find out what his younger brother actually did, like where he spent the money? Of course he spent it on prostitutes. All that does at this point most likely is reveal the imagination and fantasies of the older brother himself. Right? What's he talking about? He has no idea. And in fact, I would say this. People with an elder brother spirit, self-righteousness actually lends us to thinking worse about other people than they even really are. Like when we are moral conformists, it's so easy to sit in a high and mighty stance and look down on those who are in the camp of progressive bohemian self-discovery and not only take what they're doing in part, but to embellish it and make it worse. We're terrible accountants. We think we're better than we actually are. And here's the kicker. We actually think other people are worse than they are. And you can see why this would be a wide road that leads to destruction. Because we have a problem with accounting. And then lastly, those with an elder brother spirit, those who are self-righteous have a problem with acceptance. When we possess an elder brother spirit, we have a problem accepting other people. And we have a problem accepting ourselves. And as a result of that, we're miserable people. We lack joy. We're terrible spokesmen for the gospel. And we are in need of something to re-energize us. For some reason this week, I haven't thought about this in a while, and this will date me to some degree, and I think at least a number of you will appreciate uh, the cult favorite movie, 
uh, in the 80s, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's so many genius things about the movie that I have to be cautious at this moment not to uh, get off too much on Ferris Bueller. But I want to now to think about one of the characters in Ferris Bueller who was Ferris's best friend, aptly named Cameron. There's a number of things that we could say about Cameron, but Cameron was not a person that was full of joy. Uh, Cameron was a prig, according to N.T. Wright, in many ways. Cameron, though we never meet his family, clearly lived under this like cloak of like very thin air, let's say, in his family. And so Ferris saw it as his personal mission to get Cameron to loosen up. So much so, and this is pretty fantastic, I've never thought about this from a biblical standpoint before, Ferris would lovingly, sarcastically sing this little line to Cameron. When Cameron was in Egypt's land, let my Cameron go. And one of the things you see throughout the film is Ferris continuing to press the boundaries as they skip school, as they take Cameron's dad's vintage Ferrari, as they sneak into a restaurant, as they do all these fantastic things. One of the things that you see about Cameron throughout the film is this growing degree of acceptance. Acceptance of himself and acceptance of his crazy friend, Ferris Bueller. And by the end, Cameron is this fantastically liberated human being. So while they're in this parade in Chicago and Ferris is doing his thing, what you see on Cameron's face is pure joy. I wonder how many of us are like Cameron. And how many of us need someone like Ferris? I don't know. Maybe Jesus to come into our lives to show us the real path, the real way of joy that allows self-gospel, self-acceptance and the acceptance of other people. You see, in this story, one of the things that we see about the elder brother, he doesn't even realize what he has. The father has to remind him, all that I have is already yours. Accept it. And by the way, I'm in charge and I can do what I want to. And so I'm embracing your younger brother. Accept it. Keller says this, the lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral rectitude is still lost. We can almost hear the Pharisees gasp as the story ends. It was the complete reversal of everything they had been taught. The elder brother is not losing his father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. The elder brother is not losing his father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It is the pride he had in his moral record. It is not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father. I want to make two points in conclusion that are both meant to be words of application. This is a story about the gospel. This is a story about salvation, both initially and continually. This is not primarily a story about parenting and relating. However, I think we would miss a great opportunity to not make an observation or two as parents 
about the father and the way he deals with these wayward sons in this story, which could also be applied to any and all relationships. What do we see about the father in this parable? He goes out and he entreats the younger son in his self-discovery moral disaster. We also see the father entreating the elder brother here in the midst of his self-destructive self-righteousness. We need to take note to watch his graciousness in dealing with that. We need to see that the father is not self-righteous about those who are self-righteous. Did you hear that? We can't be self-righteous about those who are self-righteous. I talked to um, a mentor of mine yesterday who is a pastor in Chattanooga. His name is Joe Novenson. He's the senior pastor of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian um, held in uh, the highest regard within circles that I run in and know for a number of different reasons. The only thing that uh, usurps his giftedness as a preacher is his humility. And I actually emailed his assistant pastor yesterday, who's a close friend of mine, asking if he could recall for me a story that Joe Novenson recites about him as a parent. His children are grown now. And my friend emailed back, said, I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember the details. And then I get an email five minutes later from Joe Novenson himself saying, call me. And so I did. And I called Joe Novenson yesterday and said, hey, I remember you telling this story about parenting and the way you raised your kids. I think you had three kids. And there was kind of this philosophical progression from like legalism to gospel. And can you kind of tell me about that? And he, the first thing he said was, Brent, I wish I could tell you it was a philosophical progression. Instead, it was a parental discovery. He said, when my kids were younger, I had this inclination to think to myself, what am I teaching them? And so he said, I did a thing where I called them all together, and he said, I want to ask you each individually one question, and the simply, simply the one question is going to be, what's the main thing you're learning from me? Or what is the main thing that I have taught you? And so he said he dismissed all of them and then called them in one at a time and asked him one simple question. First called in his oldest son, and he said, what is the main thing that I have taught you? His son, without thinking, said, always do the right thing. Left, brings in his second child, who's also a boy. Ask him, what's the main thing that I've taught you? Once again, without thinking, the son said, do the right thing. And Joe said at this point, who's, with his wife who was there, he looked over at her with this like concerned look on his face because he didn't like those answers. And then he brings his third child in, who's a girl, and he says, what's the main thing that I've taught you? And she said, Jesus loves me. And then he said he turned to his wife and said, I've raised two Pharisees and one Christian. And he said, by God's grace, all my children embrace the gospel. But I can tell you that, and this was a caveat at the end, but I can tell you this at the end. My boys were a lot harder to raise than my girl. I don't know what you're teaching your children. I don't know what the main thing is your husband or your wife gets from you, or if you're not a parent or you're not married, I don't know what the main thing other people in your life get from you is, but the main message of the gospel is not do the right thing. The main message of the gospel is Jesus loves you. And then the second piece of application I'll give going a little bit longer. I appreciate your patience is this. In the first two parables, someone goes and seeks the sheep and the coin 
Why didn't anyone go and seek the younger brother further? The father did start to come out and did start to embrace him. But Keller and Clowney and others say what's conspicuously missing in the last parable is a fastidious seeker. And they said, you know who that seeker was supposed to be? The elder brother. The elder brother was the one that was supposed to go get the younger son. And Keller says, Jesus tells this story because he wants us all to see that we long for an elder brother who would come find us. And you know who that is? Him. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your story that you give us. We thank you that you are creative in the way in which you communicate to us. There's a lot to think about this morning from this text. We pray, Lord, that we would not leave here this morning wanting to do better and try harder to not try harder. Help us to not be self-righteous about not being self-righteous. Help us to simply conclude that we're needy and that you love us and that we could never earn or merit your favor through our obedience. And I pray that we would embrace the good news of the gospel. It's in his name we pray. Amen.